This is an MIT Press Journals podcast. I'm Mary Kelly. I teach at the University of Michigan, where I am the Ruth Borden Collegiate Professor of History, American Culture, and Women's Studies. My name is Deirdre Clementi. I am a graduate student in the History Department at Carnegie Mellon, and I am a curator at the uh, John Hines History Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Let me ask you, Deirdre, how you came to the topic and how you came to the sources, to the archive that you used. I'm fascinated by how you came upon the subject. Well, you know, as with a lot of things in my life, it comes from a great love of F. Scott Fitzgerald, (laughs) oddly (laughs) enough. I wrote my master's thesis on the role of clothing um, in the fiction, in the early fiction of F. Scott Fitzgerald, and I kept coming across Princeton. And Princeton as sort of the purveyor of men's fashion around, you know, right around 1910 into the early 1920s. And Fitzgerald sort of had the figurehead of this. So as most graduate students do, I was trolling around the um, Internet looking for people to give me money. And I came across a grant, a research grant that was offered by the Friends of Princeton Library. Mm -hmm. Um, And they they sponsored a, a, a you know, research grant. I got to go to, I, I applied for it, said that said, hey, why is Princeton cool? What was it about the boys at Princeton that made them such fashion icons? Because it was mentioned in all the trade journals. Well, we got to go, if you want to know what's going on, go to Princeton and scout out Princeton. Mm-hmm. So advising this sort of nascent fashion industry that's coming into its own in like the late teens, early 20s into the 1920s. So I go to Princeton and find out that the you know do some Princeton research, and the next summer, I say to myself, "Hey, wouldn't it be great to get another school to sort of complement Princeton as this purveyor of, of collegiate fashion?" So, they, so it sort of takes on this feeling of collegiate fashion, right? Mm-hmm. And I say, um, "Hey, what about complementing it with another women's school?" And Radcliffe came to mind because they were such nerds. <laughs> but because, how did you know that? How because you I had that? seen in the Princeton um, D- Daily Collegian, they had all of this coverage of sort of stereotypes of other Ivy League people. So Harvard boys were slobs, right? They wore the mm-hmm. same slouchy hat. They were too, too into democracy. And Yale boys were um, sort of poofy, you know, like a little bit, um, you know, effeminate. So you had this sort of these collegiate images that were so covered in the um, in this in the press of, of Princeton. So I knew that Radcliffe was nerds. I saw that that the Schlesinger Library up there offered a research grant, and I headed up to Cambridge to figure out the Radcliffe side of the story. And that's where the research comes from. I see. I see. I've been following women's education for a long time, going back to my first book, Private One, Public Stage, Literary And what I've found always, and without exception, no matter the historical period, a fear, a concern at the least, about educating women. And I've also found that it's more intense if we're discussing women's schools, women's institutions, Mm -hmm. the female academies and seminaries before the Civil War, which offered the equivalent of a male college education, or be it the Seven Sisters that emerge in the years after the Civil War. Mm -hmm. That there's an intensity about the um, concern about women's colleges. And a lot of ideas have been put forth in terms of that. 
can we talk for a minute or two about why you think there's a disparity in terms of the degree, the intensity of concern about women's colleges relative to co-educational institutions, which are also beginning to admit women during the same decades after the Civil War? Well, you know, in this respect, I'm going against, <clears throat> excuse me, some of the literature that's out there. One of the books that really shaped my study is a book called Looking Good. It was written by Margaret Lowell. It's about college women and body image, college women and body image. Mm-hmm. So she really says, hey, <clears throat> the Seven Sisters girls got off easy. So I'm sort of situating myself in a little bit. I mean, I love that work. But in my opinion, I really do feel that the Seven Sisters women were more chastised and more oh, fought and more harped mm-hmm. upon than the co-ed. And I think it's really you find it in the literature um, directed towards um, some of the contemporary literature directed on parents as to where they should send their girls, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, there is this mm-hmm. image of sort of the brainier girls who are more mature going to these upper level women's colleges, while the co-ed was a little bit more fun, right? A mm-hmm. little bit more, um, she, she was off the comments, she spent more money on her clothes than the girls that go to Radcliffe. And you see this in, like, um, Good Housekeeping or some of these, um, you know, Ladies Home Journal, some of these magazines that are helping parents pick out where to send their girls. So there's an in, there's an inherent understanding that the girls who go to the Seven Sisters are less feminine than the co-eds. And the clothing that they wear is reflective of this sort of oh, they're all alone, they don't have any men to dress for. That's a major theme. Not having men to dress for is a reason that Mm -hmm. these are deemed Mm -hmm. less attractive. But as my research shows, it's interesting, Professor, because the... The, 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 these girls, the, the seven sisters girls, were much, in the end, much more cutting edge than their co-ed sisters that were supposed to be more fashionable than they were because they were willing to take risks that the co-eds weren't capable of doing either by administrative-issued um, dress codes or by the culture of men really being there and they're trying to scam themselves a date for Saturday night. I think that's fascinating because you can argue the same exact point in terms of women's intellectual development at women's institutions, that they do not have to be sitting beside boys, competing with boys, and be expected to defer to them and therefore not try to excel on their own. And that secondly, they are also in a setting where they have other women who hold authority, whereas in co-educational institutions, it's typically men who hold authority as members of the faculty, as administrators, whatever. I think also, and I'm wondering if you discerned any of this in your research, that going back to the 18th century and the emergence of the blue stocking because, of course, the story behind the blue stocking is um, a literary circle founded in the 1780s and 90s in London, founded by women, and they wanted to ask a particular minister who was very elite in terms of education but had relatively little money. He was a pensioner at Cambridge, and because he did not have much money, he did not wear silk stockings. He could not afford them. He wore blue worsted stockings. And when they wanted to ask him to come, they would always, and then he did begin coming to the circle on a regular basis, and when they were issuing the invitations, they would always say, well, ask the blue stocking. And it was a reference to him, but then the entire circle came to have the name blue stockings. And it it stood for highly intellectual, highly accomplished Mm -hmm. women. Mm -hmm. And the, the image was divided. In some ways, it was 
powerfully positive in terms of women's intellect and their accomplishments, but it was also the negative of, as you put it, the duddy blue stocking, the blue yes. stocking who, yeah. who had no, well, it came out in two ways. She could be duddy and dowdy. That was actually better than being strident and shrill. Yes. And I mean, that yes. was even more, and I think it's that second image, that second negative image, I mean, of blue stockings that particularly affects women at women's schools, that they are pedants, that they are displaying knowledge rather than simply letting men display knowledge in whatever the conversational setting, whatever the setting in which they find themselves. So the blue stocking, blue stockingism, it cuts both ways, but in the negative sense, it's, I think, more applicable to women's institutions than it is to men's. And so, in a way, women have the advantage of being able to experiment more in women's institutions. Yes. They have the disadvantage that they are, can more easily be labeled in the negative sense, blue stockings. And so, one of the, my most, um, one of my very favorite um, illustrations of this or comments or cautions that women were offered in the 19th century comes from Hannah Moore, who knew more about self-representation than virtually anybody yeah. whom I've ever found in an archive or in contemporary life. She was able to negotiate a representation as, a, as an intellectual woman, but one was devoted to good, to virtue, to benevolence, and therefore was appropriately feminine. And what she said, and I shall never forget it, in fact I have it on my wall, if the stockings are blue, the petticoats must be long. If the <laughs> the petticoats must be long. I love so that. The argument would be, of course, that if you are a woman of intellectual aspirations, then you had better make sure that you're carefully appareled in terms of your self-representation. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, I, and I think there's still some of yeah. that today. I, I honestly do. And there's a real, you can really see that in, um, and as the article illustrates, how administrators really, these, at, these, at these women's institutions, really understood that. One of the things that these women were criticized for, um, the, the college girls, were they were being led astray by these, this is, you know, social critics in the 1920s speaking about the women at women's schools being led astray by the administrators who they themselves were so masculine and un, into fashion and that there was this culture of, the, of these women sort of inculcating younger college girls, right? The administrators influencing the college girls to be to be duds and to be, um, you know, sh shrews. Oh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you can see it into, I mean, I see it into the 20s. And that's why these administrators really were were pushing to get their students as representative, represented as, as the whole package, as brains and beauty, you know. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And and in doing so, did they receive cooperation from the students? Did the students, I, as I recall the article, having reread it today, the students are cooperative, but they're also independent in establishing these Absolutely. images themselves. Absolutely, and it's in it. In you really see, um, you know, sort of the the range of student emotion to these um, images of them as blue stockings is is interesting. It starts off in the century being like, hey, we're not really as bad as everybody says we are, right? Mm -hmm. Then sort of in the 1920s, you see in their student newspapers this rise of being like, well, we're nerds, but, you know, the, college, the Harvard boys still ask us out. They, they conduct studies of how many Harvard men asked out Radcliffe girls in the month of, you know, February or something and mm -hmm. put it in their school newspaper to sort of 
prove that they were attractive women that people wanted to date and that sort of thing. And then it, by the, you know, into the 30s and 40s, you sort of see these girls saying, oh, the only reason you're even mean to us, you Harvard guys, is just because we won't, you know, we don't give you the time of day and that we're so independent of you. Mm-hmm, Do you mm-hmm. see this change reflected in their own image of themselves and how they project themselves to the public via um, newspapers and letters? For example, there's a letter in the article from in, um, in Nancy Murray Morgan, who's one of my favorite sources um, in, the, in the article and in my larger dissertation, um, where she says, we're working our best to fight off this Radcliffe. This is a letter to her parents. We're working our best to fight off, a letter, fight off a, um, the image of the Radcliffe freshman as, as, as an unattractive girl. You know, something along those lines is what she was yes. saying to her parents mm-hmm. on reporting on her first week at school. <laughs> so you see this change in, in how they view themselves. They become much more sort of proud of their um, braininess in mm-hmm. a way. Can, you, can we talk a little bit about how you see why it has been continually since women began to express women in the West, women in, mm-hmm. from the Enlightenment forward, from the Western Enlightenment forward, um, expressed educational aspirations and why it is that, and, and this would be education in a formal sense, mm-hmm. and why it is that that has always appeared to be threatening in some quarters at least. What is, what is the reason that, you, that, as you see it from the work you've done, that it appears to be threatening to um, too much of society, not only men, but also certain women as well. Yes, yes. It, it, it really, it's really important that you pointed out it is also among, um, among women. A lot of the social critics in the teens and the 20s were women themselves harping on this group of women. I think there's several levels of it. One of the key levels is that these women are sort of sequestered off you know, alone. There's a there's a there's a there's an idea that the co- the, the women's college campus is an isolated environment. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of beyond the eyes of men. And what are they doing? They're learning back there, and they're not learning home ec. And you know, you know how to. They are sometimes. And but what they might do with that. <laughs> yes, yes. And, yeah, and I, not only what they might do with it, but also why are they doing it? They're just going to, they should just leave and come and become mothers. You know, there were all these studies done on what happens with the college graduate, how many of them use their degrees, you know, and they're done by outside institutions as well as places like Radcliffe, who in the 80s did a big study of all of their graduates and how these women use these educations and things like that. So a definite fear of, of the women sequestered off but also what why are you doing that you're just going to become a wife anyway sort of this this feeling like of them wasting their time well you know as late as the late 1950s Adlai Stevenson gave a commencement address at Smith College in which he said that you know you were very fortunate you have this splendid education now you're going to be using it to be wives and mothers as late as that date openly and thoroughly saying you are not to be doing anything else well, I mean, and you, of course, know of the origins of it, you know, a hundred years before. There's always this feeling that, okay, well, you can get an education as long as you're going to use it in your motherhood, right? Exactly. exactly. You're in charge of your kid's education, and mm-hmm. these boys mm-hmm. will become great American thinkers and great American Americans if the mothers teach them all about the history. And you know what I mean? That that sort of feeling that women are responsible for the mothering and the education. So in that respect, it was okay these women were getting these degrees, but as long as they weren't doing too many um, things outside the home with it, you know. Exactly. 
Exactly, therefore interfering with the public domain, which was supposed to be solely male. And of course, the fear that was real and tangible that these women were not going to become mothers, that they exactly. would go to these ed very educated women with all these great genes are going to lay barren and, yes. you know, all and of the immigrant mothers. That that's the word that is used. It's not a matter of yes. women choosing not to yes. have children, but they are barren, which is a yes. very clear connotation. It's, it's to be not truly a woman. Yes. yes exactly. So... But I think also that what I liked so much about your article was the way in which you were able to open outward to all of the strategies that women were using, both administrators and students, to make themselves mm -hmm. into what you might know as regular girls. <laughs> yes, yes. And a lot of this was deliberate, am I right? Oh, very well orchestrated. On Everybody sort of, especially in the Radcliffe case, um, really knew what the score was. You know, they yeah. knew they had this reputation as unattractive. The administrators knew that the administrators were kind of being blamed for mm -hmm. um, these mm -hmm. girls and their sort of th this bad reputation. And of course, a key element being the development of public relations as an industry and something that higher education institutions of higher education really started to use in the late mm -hmm. 1920s and into the 1930s, knowing that, hey, if we don't craft the image of these Radcliffe girls, the Boston Post is going to do it for us, and they're going to be a lot less kind than we yes. can be if we proactively pursue shaping this public image of the educated woman. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And I think they were fairly successful, don't you? I really do. And I mean, I think that's one of the really fun things about this piece is, you know, it does speak to bigger issues of women in higher education and, um, you know, sort of meta issues in American culture. But it also really shows us how these women view themselves, you know, it, and the sources really speak to that. You have really have some of these girls um, actively discussing um, public opinion of the educated woman and their own quest to sort of, you know, alleviate the, the blue stocking image and what it meant to them um, as as members of this group that's being, you know, sort of ostracized or, or dissected was a better word. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, do you find that um, in your research, do you find that some of this is still lingering? Oh, of course, you know, as I sort of, as I conclude the article with, um, you know, one of the things that really was getting to me in um, some of the coverage of women like Michelle Obama, Princeton graduate, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and of course, Hillary Clinton, Wellesley graduate, was how there, the, the public was more interested in Michelle's shoulders and um, Hillary's pantsuits at yes. times than they were in their politics. Now, of course, that's, you know, that's a, that's a heavy-handed statement. But, you know, the, the, sort of this reoccurrence of commentary on Michelle wearing shorts to the Grand Canyon. In, you know, yes, uh -huh. exactly. And what does that mean? And what does it mean that they didn't, you know, there were other uh, first ladies that were not from this elite educated background that never were subjected to the kind of scrutiny that these other women were? Mm -hmm. So it, it makes you think about that in the in the modern you know in the modern context, and I think as as a um, daughter of a sociologist and a P, soon to be PhD, I myself 
have felt, I remember my father saying to me in my early 30s, you know, statistically, and with each each level of education you choose, Deirdre, the odds of you getting married just keep decreasing and keep decreasing. You're fighting a losing battle. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yes. Well, sociologists. So I, I myself have felt that sort of, um, you know, pressure, and I now feel it in a different respect as an academic and a, and a new mother. To sort of, to sort of strip, be on both sides of the fence, and um, feeling the pressure of motherhood and scholarship, which is another, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. d- dimension of this of this research. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you see, you see it as a basic negotiation, a continuing negotiation. I do. I see it as a continuing negotiation, and I see it probably as, um, you know, women and the students themselves and the uh, having having a lot more power than previously, um, previously written about in a lot of the literature on women. Mm-hmm. I think as well that going back to my own years as a student at a women's college, I'm a graduate of Mount Holyoke. That oh, wonderful! <laughs> the aspirations... I can see a couple of jokes right now, but I won't. I won't. I won't tell you the <laughs> reputation of the Mount Holyoke girls were, but I'm sure you probably know. Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> well, I would like to hear, though, from your perspective, having done more research on it. All I know is what I experienced in terms of the cliches. But I also found that the kind of aspirations that a women's college can generate in an individual are truly extraordinary. And I think that in terms of negotiating one's own image, one's own sense of self, as you move through the sorts of decisions, especially for those of us who've chosen to be involved in higher education, I think it's absolutely crucial what a women's college can offer offer you in the following sense, that from the very day I practically arrived in South Hadley, I came to understand that whatever attempts to diminish those aspirations, or in in the more cliché, whatever sexism I faced, that I understood that it was structural, not personal, that it wasn't about me as an individual. It was about a social structure in place that in which women, women's own aspirations, women's desire for full open opportunity, equality of opportunity, was structurally being undermined or being confined or being constrained, and that what you had to do was change the social structure. And I think that's absolutely crucial. And also what I sense as part of the concern of people who worry about women's institutions is that they understand that it does generate those aspirations and those understandings. And, you know, you really, I think you really start to see um, into more and more women, of course, are the, the majority of, of people going to college were, were going to co-educational institutions, right? So yeah, these women were, of course, in the minority. And as you see them becoming even more of the minority in the 30s and 40s, you really see the public relations departments of these women's institutions bringing to the public via magazines like Time or profiles in more specifically college type magazines like Mademoiselle or Seventeen are they're trying to sell the unique benefits of these schools and they're trying to sort of diversify the public how the public sees these schools in terms of like they're different they're not all just the seven sisters the girls at Mount Holyoke are are, are do-gooders right you guys were do-gooders you were um <laughs> you were religious of course um you were much more conservative than the sisters at Wellesley who were really into more into fashion or um they were the best they were the Wellesley girls were the most fun to date 
the, the Ivy League boys would have said. Well, there was a class dimension to that, too. Wealthy, wealthy women were, came from wealthier families. Yes. And Mount Holyoke women. Yes. And Mount Holyoke's women in the 19th century said the largest number of missionaries, women missionaries abroad of any of these institutions, and that's where a lot of this do-goodery comes from, and it's, it yes. is a reality, no question about it. And so sort of the one of the interesting things that came out of this project and out of the, the dissertation as a larger work are the sort of individual personalities of these elite schools in a way that I didn't understand them until I started to really look at the sources. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I, have a, I have a diary entry from a Radcliffe girl um, from the early 1920s talking. She said, in today in English class, after the, le- the teacher was done with her lecture, with his lecture, um, we sat around and we discussed the different stereotypes of the girls. The, the Vassar girls, the snob. The Wellesley girls, you know, so they, it was an open discussion amongst these college students what the mm-hmm. individual characteristics of these institutions were. And that's really not captured in a lot of the um, literature on student culture, the history of student culture. Right. Yes. I think what, I, what I'm able to take from your article, which I think is so important, is the way in which it opens outward to larger considerations of women's education, women's aspirations for professional and intellectual development, the ways in which women are able to negotiate representations that make that more plausible and make it less uh, difficult for them, less um, less in terms of becoming people who would be somehow seen as peculiar or different and therefore uh, not fitting into American culture. And what I also take from it is the shrewdness with which these women and the administrators of these institutions were able to themselves manipulate images to the benefit of people who went to these colleges. And so yet again, you can see how clearly, carefully attuned they are to the sort of images that are being projected. And finally, how the degree to which fashion, clothing, bodily representation is so crucial to how women are seen. And so that they look to that as a way of, of manipulating an image and, and transforming it to their benefit. So I congratulate you, and I think it's a remarkably fine article. I appreciate your comments at, at the editing level and, you know, just on the sort of final thought um, in terms of where this article fits in my larger stream of research. Um, is is that ultimately, you know, I'd like to. Uh, I'm working on. I'm working on the book version of this manuscript of the dissertation right now, and it really considers um, not only the the topics that that Mary just touched on, but also sort of the role of youth, and what young right. what this means to young women, mm-hmm. um, and um, sort of the interplay of of masculinity and femininity being reshaped on the college campus via appearances, clothing, grooming, like what what that means in sort of the bigger picture of the development of American culture in the 20th century. So that's sort of the bigger picture of the work. And I really wanted to thank um, Mary. I wanted to thank the New England Quarterly for um, publishing the article. Um, they really went to bat for me and got me um, lots of photos. There's a couple photos in the piece. Um, Schlesinger Library, who funded um, a dissertation grant for me to come up there and do this wonderful work, and all the librarians up there who helped me find these wonderful sources that are represented in the article, um, and of course MIT Press for you know this co- this sponsoring this con- conversation today. So thanks, and I'm glad I could share my research with you. And thank you, Jennifer.
information about this article, the New England Quarterly, or any of our publications, please visit our website at mitpressjournals.org.